0: Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura.
1: And I'm Amity. Let's get started. Hey, we're really excited about this episode today because we are going to be talking all about one of England's most well-known worldwide and prolific authors, Charles Dickens. And the reason that we're doing that is because next week, we're going to start talking about what he called his best story, The Tale of Two Cities. I'm really excited about that as well. Because even though he calls it his best story, and it is fairly well-known, to me, I don't think it's quite on the level of like, Obviously, A Christmas Carol, Oliver Twist, Great Expectations. People know it, but I think that those may be some of the more well-known ones. Anyway, so we're going to talk all about Charles Dickens. We're going to talk a little bit about Tale of Two Cities. Yeah, I just hope it's going to be a really good intro for next. Can I week. admit something? Yes. I'm scared. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, I'm scared to are you scared read this about?
0: book. I'm scared to read this book. <laughs> I read yeah. the plot. I've never read it. The only Charles Dickens book I've ever read was Great Expectations. And I read the plot summary this week and I was like, oh my gosh, this is hard. I thought- It is. I thought Far From the Madding Crowd was hard. No, no, no.
1: (laughs) Yeah. This is gonna be hard. This one is next level hard for sure, but it'll be so good. And I think it could be really helpful because I think a lot of people probably find it really hard. So for, for us to read it and then hopefully like bring it to like layman's terms and modern English and things like that. Hopefully people can understand it. And just because we do doesn't mean that we are nailing every part of it hundred percent. Like there's still a lot open for, for people to read and, and maybe they'll interpret it slightly differently and that's fine. But um, hopefully it'll give a good start for a lot of people. Yeah. I just want everybody to know if you're scared, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Me too. Because I was thinking, I have read several of... Charles Dickens books, not as many as I should. And I realized as I was studying about him that I need to just like dive into several more. But I read A Tale of Two Cities many years ago. I think I've read it twice before this. And it was many years ago. And this was in my period of time that I've talked about before when I knew that it was really important to read the classics, did not understand anything. As I was reading, I really got to the end. Well, the thing about it is A Tale of Two Cities, it probably has two lines that are like well known across everything. Like whether you've read any Dickens or not, you probably know the phrase, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And you may also know the phrase at the very end of the book, it is a far, far better thing that I do now than I have ever done. But what happens in between? <laughs> I was like, like, I'm reading this. I don't know what's going on. then I knew it was about the French revolution and there's a love story, kind of love triangle. And that's, I know we got this. We can do this together around is much better for sure. And it does. Hopefully that does give some hope to people who struggle now. Like, It is a progression and there's a learning curve, but as you make yourself do it and slow down and force yourself to try to understand the classics, you get to the point where you eventually can do. So It's all about
0: practice. That's my theory.
1: Exactly. Like everything else. All right. So first of all, Charles Dickens was the most popular novelist of the 19th century. And I think that he's probably would still be up there today. He was born February 7th, 1812 at Landport in Portsea in England. Of course, his parents were John Dickens and Elizabeth Barrow. And he was the second of eight children. Two of his siblings, unfortunately, died when they were very young. Something really interesting. So I read part of of his biography, which was written by his really good friend, John Forrester. And so to me, that is probably one of the best recordings about his life by an outside source, because he was he was his good friend. He lived during the time. He had a much um, better idea of context and, and everything. And so that is a, a really wonderful source. And so what he said, he quoted Dickens as saying that he was not overly taken care of as a child. And so he didn't really feel like he owed his parents much, which was interesting because as I read and listened to other things about him, it talked about, oh, he loved his parents. They were such wonderful parents. They were a very happy family. And out of his own mouth, it doesn't sound like that was necessarily the case. And it's not that they're a bad family, but he says he wasn't overly taken care of. And I think that he was pretty traumatized as a child. And we'll talk about that. A little bit more. So his father was hardworking. He was a clerk for the naval yards there. But that kind of moved him around a bit. The problem was he overspent his money. So he was constantly in debt. And it was just a very chaotic childhood, I would say. Uh, Charles Dickens, he was always very sickly as a child. And that could be in part, maybe, maybe there was a little bit of neglect there. There were a lot of children, very concerned about money, very stressed and also living like on the coast. If you're already prone to not being well, that may have contributed to a sort of sickly nature, but it talked about how he would have these spasms. I don't know if it was like seizures or what, but. And he never really excelled at sports. I think, you know, like cricket or marbles, they considered a sport, just running and playing with the other boys. I think a lot of that could be contributed to his just sort of sickly nature. But as in like everything in life, that hardship, that downside to his childhood led to an upside, which was that he did spend a lot of time observing the kids that were playing and a lot of time reading. And something he does credit his mother for is teaching him to read. It doesn't sound like she was like the greatest teacher, but she did spend time every day helping him to read. That was a huge blessing. So he read a ton, he observed and, you know, watched all these things going on. When he was about 12, his dad actually was thrown into debtor's prison and horrible situation. And because his dad was in debtor's prison, of course, women were not really able to provide for their children. But something there was like this arrangement where if the the father husband provider was in debtor's prison, his family could come live with him. It's like, oh, neat. Like you can was, go live in debtor's prison with your dad. I thought that was very interesting. Like, yeah, it was like, would you want to? I know.
0: But, but they maybe did.
1: they they did, and maybe the alternative was living on the street. Like maybe yeah, that yeah. was the only alternative. And he could not get out of debtors prison until his debt was paid off. It was an amount of about 40 pounds, which at the time would be like huge, right? The only one who was able to go to work was Charles, who was 12 years old. And the only work that he could get as a 12-year-old boy was in a boot shining. Factory. So he worked twelve hours a day and made six shillings a week, and he hated it. He hated it. Like I can't even imagine. Of course, he's like trying to make that money to help his dad pay off his debt, but like that would take forever. At six (laughs) shillings a week, plus he like he didn't live in the debtor's prison with his dad. He paid rent for a little plate, like a tiny little room for himself. So here's this sweet twelve-year-old little boy whose childhood is over. And fortunately, he worked there for almost a year. Before the end of the year, his father's mother died. So his grandma died. And his father inherited enough money that he was able to pay off his debt. It does make you wonder, like, couldn't the grandma, like, at least have helped the mom and kids a little bit so they didn't have to live in debtor's prison? Like, yeah. come on. Or given them the money then? given them the money then. I mean, like... He did, it sounds like he did have a habit of like overspending, always being in debt. And so maybe after a time, she was just like, you're on your own, pal. But what about the kids and the wife who they are literally helpless, you know? Anyway, regardless, she passes away. He inherits the money, pays it all off, and they're able to get out of debtor's prison. But then this is a part that I think would have traumatized him for life because after they get out of debtor's prison, Charles is like, you know, I get to go live with my family and I don't have to work in this blasted place anymore. But his mom said, no, we need the extra money. So Charles needs to stay doing that. That to me would probably be one of the most damaging parts of this whole scenario is like, my mom doesn't care about me, you know? So that would be awful.
0: It was probably more deep than we're, you know what I mean? Like, she's like, well, we have to eat or whatever. So he has to do this. I'm sorry. But still, as a kid, you're like,
1: Wait a second. Yeah. I'm you. have your me. perspective. Yes, exactly. And that's probably exactly what he felt like was a human sacrifice. And no kid wants to feel that way. It was such a hard time. But all of this comes into his books. And that's what's so interesting. And that's why I think it's important to talk about his childhood is because you see it all come out in his books. And he gained so much empathy for people people of that plight because he'd been there and he also learned from his father and learned that that's not where he ever wanted to be and so he worked his butt off and it probably there was some trauma there so he like worked harder than was probably necessary after a time after he was like world famous had loads of money but he kept working super hard because he did not ever want to be where his father was i think it was extremely formative and traumatizing time age 15 He became apprentice to an attorney as a junior law clerk. Well, I don't know if apprenticeship would be the right thing, but I think basically an apprenticeship. So through that, he learned shorthand and that's kind of where his writing career began because not only was he like writing down everything that was happening and recording it, but he also observed everybody that came in to the attorney and he would like write, like describe what they looked like describe their stories, and then make up other stories about them. So that's kind of where everything began. He initially wanted to be an actor, and he thought that's where his life was going to take him. He loved to perform. He would, like, jump up on tables at taverns and, like, sing and dance and things like that. And he was quite the little actor. But he auditioned for a play at Covent Gardens, which was kind of a big deal at the time. He ended up getting really sick and wasn't able to make it to the audition. And so he didn't get the spot and they never let him try again and so his dream of being an actor kind of but he did like get other opportunities later on which i think is really cool and interesting he actually instead became a journalist at the morning chronicle so he started writing for real at a newspaper i loved that he that he left school when he became
0: an apprentice for the law clerk and he was a voracious reader And so that's probably what, like, kept his education going. And anyways, I love it when I hear that people are
1: voracious readers. Yeah. And that they do so well because of it. Like, it really is a testament to the fact that, like, reading is the door to almost everything. Like, whatever you want to do, reading will get you there in a better way, I think. Do you know what his first novel was? So in 1833, so at that point, he would have been 21. He submitted his first story, A Dinner at Poplar Park, to the London Periodical Monthly magazine. In 1836, so he's about 24, he had been doing these submissions for the magazine called Sketches by Boz. So that was sort of like his nom de plume, right? And they got really, really popular. And after a certain time, they became the Pickwick Papers, is what it, it was renamed, if I'm, if I'm recalling and reading that right. I
0: thought The Pickwick Papers was one of his first novels. Is that what yes. was in my head?
1: It, yes. Right, um, okay, so the success of Sketches by Boz led to a proposal from publishers for Dickens to supply text plus illustrations in a monthly letter press. The resulting story became The Pickwick Papers. It got to where The Pickwick Papers became so incredibly popular. So they were like, Monthly installments, I believe, and they got to where they were selling 40,000 copies a month. That is so many, especially at a time when like their method of publishing was pretty rudimentary compared to what it is today. 40,000 copies a month, and that he did. He, so at the age of 25, he was very successful, very famous, and quite wealthy. So he was doing really well for himself. And then from there... He just started writing and writing in here too. He also uh, met and married his wife, Catherine Hogarth. Um, he had fallen in love with another lady named Mariah, but that didn't work out because he was not wealthy or successful at the time. And so her father was like, no, you don't get to marry him. But so then he he did meet and marry Catherine Hogarth. He's writing and writing and doing really well. He did write one that was kind of a, a bomb. He was like in debt, to his publishers and so he's kind of freaking out and so they told him you well he wanted to write a book for people's christmas tray he knew that it needed to be something that would bring in money thus A Christmas Carol was born. So that was in about 1843. And it really, the timing could not have been more perfect because that was the same year as the first Christmas card. There's a brand new royal family, uh, Victoria and Albert. Albert brought the Christmas tree to England. And so just this idea of the Christmas traditions and everybody going back to this childlike love of Christmas and, and all those things, it just really worked. For the time. And so it became immensely popular and did really well. And so he just, he kept writing and writing and he and his wife, Catherine had 10 children. And as far as I can tell, none of them passed away early. I didn't read anything about that, but he's somebody that he had several books going at a time, which I can't even fathom. I would love to talk to some like prolific authors and see if that something that they do because i mean i could imagine having other ideas for things but we're talking like he's writing and has installments going out and that's something it talked about too like it's just how amazing that was that it brought literature to everybody and just the everyday person because this idea of having installments in magazines and newspapers because for just like a shilling they could get part of a story Where to get a whole book that was leather bound, it was only the very rich who could afford something like that. So they were able to read great literature for pretty cheap. So it was really an amazing opportunity for people. He is somebody who did his research by walking out and being among the people he was writing about. So he went to the workhouses and he went to the prisons and he went to like the slums. He affected social reform like nobody else at that time because he didn't like the Victorian era. He felt like the industrial revolution made England very dirty, very dark, very crass. It was this idea of the child labor and and the fact that there's these little children laboring in, in factories for hours and hours for no pay. And it was very dangerous very fatal for many of them. And there was just like no hope. And once people went to workhouses, they knew there was no way out. But that was like their very last straw. Like that's why so many times in his books and in other places, it'll be like, we would rather die than go to a workhouse because they would. It was like, that was the end if they ended up in a workhouse. There was no way out of that. And so he really tried to bring light to that and to also show like through Oliver Twist and other things, that bad things don't just happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. You can be a hardworking, good person, and bad things can happen to you. And it's not necessarily fair. It's just not fair that they're subject to abuse and torture and starvation and all these things just because they've fallen on hard times. There's like no hope for them. And he really saw the plight of women too. And how if their husband died, there was nothing for them. A lot of them were women who were like housewives and they knew how to manage a household, but that is not bringing income to support their children. So they had no skills to support their children. So later on, when he had money, he actually established a home called, I don't know, I didn't, I guess I didn't write it down, but it was just a home (laughs) for homeless women. And they could go there and they could learn skills that would help them to earn money to support themselves and their families. That was really cool. Another thing is that basically if you ever knew Charles Dickens in your life, you would probably end up in one of his books because he wrote about like everybody, (laughs) like any character, especially any star character. It was probably somebody in Dickens life and be worried if there's a bad guy in there and you knew Dickens because you might be the bad guy or somebody that he doesn't speak well of in his books. So, so he and his wife have been married for over 20 years and he just decided that he was kind of done with their marriage. Like he I think he really struggled with a lot of depression, a lot of sadness, like never really being satisfied. He had achieved everything he set out to achieve. He had a family, he had a large home, he had lots of children. He was well-known all throughout the world. Like he did these tours all over Europe and in America. He even got to do acting. And he would also do like these read aloud things in front of crowds. And he'd published all these books and did very well. He had reached like all of his goals and he was still dissatisfied and not happy. And so he kind of decided to blame that on his marriage. And I don't know because I'm not there. I read
0: that he was like bored with her, like she just yeah. wasn't exciting to him. And I mean, I think of that as like, I mean, I don't know, because I'm not a celebrity or married to a celebrity, but like maybe, you know, that could happen in that kind of a relationship, right? Like yeah. he was this important celebrity and, you know, maybe he, it went to his head. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah. I think that that definitely could have a lot to do with it. By all accounts, she was a sweet woman, but not super intelligent. She was quite chubby, and I. It sounds like he put a lot of stock into things like that. So maybe not super attracted to her. Maybe wasn't like excited by her. Any, and all these things sound like super selfish, but apparently to him they were very real. I mean, he had an affair, right, with
0: this actress, and it, I think yeah. he was quite young.
1: She was nineteen, and he was yeah. like forty-five. Yeah, I was like, mm. and <laughs> these days yeah. though, that would not fly no
0: i I mean mean, it happens (laughs) like
1: again look at the celebrities good grief (laughs) pretty nasty and he did get a legal separation from his wife and basically he had all of his children come live with him and didn't want them to contact her at all and so it's like he kind of turned into a huge jerk.
0: here he is writing about like change and like you know, poor yeah. people who can't get out of their situations and the poor people. And right. And then he.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Changes. totally.
1: Yeah. Totally own. puts his children in an awful situation. Now. I, I think that his wife, like he put her in a nice home and everything, but like. The rest of it was, I mean, she may as well have been in a prison. Like, that would be just awful. Because after his death, almost all the children had contact with their mother again. Like, they reconnected with her. I don't know. Like, there could be more to it. Maybe she was not a nice lady. Because it does make you wonder. Men had so much more say and power at that point in time. So, so maybe that's how it happened. Because it does make you wonder, like, how was he able to keep all of his children... Completely away from her yeah, for such a long time. But especially into adulthood, you would think that... Because a lot of them would have been adults before he died. So why... I think I read somewhere that
0: his children were really like entitled and spoiled. Mm-hmm. That could be. I don't know if
1: that would have anything to do with it, but I kind of thought that was interesting. But, yeah, I mean, know. they grew up wealthy, probably, right? Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, he's wealthy by the time he's 25. Yeah. So his children... They were doing really well yeah. their whole life. Well, I
0: have some interesting facts about him. So I don't know. I thought these were fascinating. <laughs> awesome. Okay. I don't know. These are just random. Okay. The first one is he had insomnia. Mm-hmm. And so he always slept facing north because he thought it would help his insomnia. And he always wrote facing north. Oh, interesting. he worked on his novels. I know. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of, maybe he was superstitious or a little bit or something. Sounds like, um, it. Yeah he was almost killed in a train accident. So Mm -hmm. five years to the day before he died, he was in a train Mm -hmm. accident that derailed. He lived and he was actually not injured. But I mean, I guess so almost killed in a train accident is probably not the right words, but (laughs) he was in a train accident,
1: which is very, it would be horrifying because car accidents are like so scary. Yes. A train though is like, so huge. There's just so much more power. It's all tied together. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, this
0: is interesting. Oh, I think, I can't remember what dictionary, probably, anyways, one of the dictionaries, credits him with these words that he Mm. made up. A buzz. Oh, cool. That's kind of interesting, like, Mm -hmm. it's all a buzz. I don't know. Mm -hmm. The creeps.
1: (gasps) You use that all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Flummox. And that he made that up. It's such a good word.
0: I love yeah. it. Cool. And then the last
1: one is "devil may care." Mm. <laughs> really, that's super. And that one is definitely I mean, highly used, and or at least that we like read in other things, or hear in movies, or whatever. Even if <laughs> okay, like today, it would be kind of funny if we use that just in our regular <laughs> <laughs> now. Devil may care. Like I feel like we would have to give it a little bit of a British accent if we said it, but. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's true. Okay. So then we talked about how he had 10 children and he had nicknames for each of his children. And mm. some of his nicknames were Chicken Stalker. Oh. Like S-T-A-L-K-E-R. Yeah. Lucifer Box. And the last one is Skittles. Maybe, Interesting. That's, maybe that's where Skittles oh, came Maybe. From. I thought that was cute. Okay. He was fascinated with hypnotism and mm. he would practice it. He would experiment on his wife and children interesting I know, I know that was really funny um and he thought it would could cure anxiety and like mm. I can't remember what else but one of the things was like anxiety
1: um well maybe he thought it would cure insomnia too
0: I can't even imagine That's... like practicing hypnotism on somebody
1: <laughs> that's so funny. I've tried to do
0: hypnotism like be hypnotized and I'm like not capable of it. So, okay, people thought he might have had OCD. So, he was constantly combing his hair. He constantly rearranged his furniture. Mm. And the last thing is he was constantly looking at himself in the mirror. Oh, really? Interesting. I have family members that do that too in my immediate family <laughs> that I'm like, "You guys are always looking in the mirror." Like, they can't walk by a mirror without being like,
1: <laughs> it's funny like is that me i'm so impressed i know
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that's almost the face they give themselves in the mirror it's like wow. Look at me. i'm not gonna rat out to do a double they take. is that really me <laughs> i love it but, <laughs> but they know who they are um okay and then the last one was his favorite novel he wrote was david copperfield and that it was the most autobiographical
1: yes And I read,
0: I'll talk about some other stuff later, but it was also in first person.
1: Yeah. And so my thought with that is that I think it'd be really interesting to read both John Forster's biography of Charles Dickens, he who knew him personally, was his friend, next to David Copperfield, which is very autobiographical. Inner thoughts, you know, because I think that's really what you're going
0: to get there. I was watching some YouTube videos about him. And there was this guy that was showing some stuff from like one of his museums, but mm. in England that they have set up. They were showing like a copy of one of the books that was owned by Charles Dickens' father. And he said, I think he said it was illustrated by John Forrester, who was his personal friend.
1: Oh, interesting. That's cool. Okay. Did, did you know he was an illustrator? I didn't know he was an illustrator. I know that with the Pickwick papers, they're the original illustrator. With that, he did not like him. He didn't want him to illustrate the Pickwick Papers. That guy actually ended up committing suicide, and so they hired somebody else who Charles Dickens really liked. I'm not sure if it was John Forster. Or not. No, I uh,
0: I think that's the name. It was definitely a John that illustrated the book, and they were talking about how I think it. Oh, it was a, it was a Christmas Carol. That was the book, and it was. Originally printed in red and green and Charles Dickens didn't like it. And so he changed it to red and blue. They wanted it red and green for Christmas. And then, yeah.
1: No. And so the pictures
0: very interesting.
1: Well, if I had more time, I would have just gone through and read the entire biography written by John Forster. But even just in the little bit, I was able to read and then going to some of the YouTube videos. I was like, they didn't get that quite right because it kind of disagrees with, well, not everything, like a lot of it is, I, I think it probably is right, but just things like I said, you know, they kind of assumed that he had a very happy family life and things, but he didn't. And that, you know, just in the things that he told his friend, John Forster and things that he knew, sounds like he did not. Did John Forster write it after Charles Dickens died? Uh, that's a great question. I Okay. Because I, I know. Cause that he died pretty at, young. I mean, like yeah, I was 58, which is relatively, it's relatively young. It is. I'm not sure. Okay. But I did want to say that he does remain one of the most beloved and respected authors of all time. And in fact, there's some other highly respected authors: Dostoyevsky, Tolstoy, Faulkner, all these others who are so well known that they got their inspiration from Charles Dickens. He influenced a lot of people. So it's like there's so many people that have their demons. And for him, his demons drove him. And people have their weaknesses. And they can still contribute good things to the world. They can still help the rest of us be better and do better, you know, despite their weaknesses. God uses everybody. I think a lot of
0: times your weaknesses are what make you have strengths in other areas, actually, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Like I look at kids with, you know, you might say special needs, right? Maybe they're on the autism spectrum. And so they struggle with certain maybe social things or like understanding the world, but then they're so gifted in other areas. And so those people, a lot of times, are what brings us like beauty and yeah. literature and music and, you know, like absolutely. Apparently.
1: Anyways. And really, like, if you start looking at the lives of a lot of authors, poets, they're pretty wracked with trauma and sadness. and They're tormented. They're tormented for sure. But we get so much beauty from yeah. that. And so, so I think that's a huge lesson. Like, don't discount anybody just because maybe they have some imperfect parts. Anyway,
0: Yeah, everybody has something to contribute, I think. I have 10 tips for oh. how to read Dickens. And I thought they were really funny. <laughs> okay, so the first one is don't take him too seriously. Mm. He wanted to write books that a lot of people would read. So he wanted to write popular things and he wrote he wrote like you said he wrote them in serial form so they would come out in publications like
1: what you said once a month right Yeah or something It depended later on he printed things that were like every week wow but larger things were monthly so he's very funny and he's trying to be funny and so mm-hmm. you can't take him too seriously
0: and it kind of reminded me a little bit of far from the madding crowd like Thomas Hardy I mean yeah. he's funny when you really read it deeply, you're like, this is really funny. You know? Yeah. You could miss it because if you're surface reading or whatever, but anyways, so that's one thing. Don't take him too seriously. The second thing was now this, we are totally not doing this correctly. Start with either David Copperfield or great expectations because they're Mm -hmm. written in first person and there's Mm -hmm. less added characters. And you know, it kind of follows one character all the way through or a Christmas Carol. That was another one that you could start with. So yes. Yeah, we're I talking. would agree with that. But I'm sorry. I didn't know that when I was like, Let's okay. do the tale we're, of two
1: cities. You know what? Like dive
0: in. Why not? <laughs> okay. Number three is don't be scared by the length. The reason they are long is because they were published in these monthly public newsletters, newspapers magazines, whatever. Okay. So that goes into number four, which is take your time, Mm -hmm. give it time. It's hard to just sit down and read a Dickens novel from start to finish. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's something you can read slowly. And I think that's kind of the idea of what we're doing here is like, when we present a book, we're doing just a few chapters a week. And it's so good to like, just slowly read them each week, just read a few chapters and, you know, then let it digest or whatever. Do read a full chapter at a time or you could even look up how they were published and read them in that cluster. I know that That's a good idea. Chapters 1 through 3 were published in the same edition of the magazine or newspaper. Number 5. Don't worry about all the minor characters. <laughs> this is funny. So, it's going to take a while to get into his novels, like probably 10 to 12 chapters or whatever. Mm-hmm. He wrote these in Like you would read one, uh, you know, a little installment and then a month later you'd read another installment. And so he'll remind you of the minor characters later mm-hmm. because it may have been three or four months since you've encountered mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Don't let that bog you down. You don't need to like make a list or yes, <laughs> a chart to figure out who people are.
1: Yeah. Just remember he was a brilliant writer writing for people. He knew his audience. And so, yeah, we don't have to be intimidated by it. He's taking care of us as his readers, which he's got amazing, he does, which
0: is pretty amazing. Yeah. I love number six. Charles Dickens is weird. (laughs) Don't forget that. So like, as you're reading, you're like, oh yeah, he's weird. That's why this is in here. That reminds Mm -hmm. me of, I mentioned this in our episode when we talked about our top 10 classic books. When we read Great Expectations in high school. And the only thing I can remember about it was like mm-hmm. the father putting his head on the back wall and there was like mm. a grease spot laying, you know, stuck there. I mean, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs>
1: You're like that detail. I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> but- that's
0: the only thing I remember for that whole story. I think the teacher made a big deal out of it, which is I remember it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number seven, don't get bogged down by the language or the cultural references. Just try to like keep going. Yeah kind of surface read, I guess. I don't know. Number eight, try it on audio. Yeah. So his writing was meant to be read aloud because a lot of people didn't read at that time. Yeah. So he knew that it was going to be read out loud and like audio helps because there's different accents. They use different voices for different characters. And sometimes he writes in dialect, which is yes. hard to read. on. The yeah.
1: Page. And you know that the narrators have Generally done their research, and so they're going to read it as close to the way as he would want it read as they possibly can. If they're a good narrator, yeah, and most of them are. So, yeah, that's. A very, I think really- about like,
0: do you ever read a book or listen to a book on audio, and it's like maybe it's written about an African woman, and they didn't use like a narrator that has an African accent. Yeah. <laughs> it's so annoying.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like, well, just or anything. I remember listening to a book years ago, a Welsh mystery, but it was like an American girl who goes to Wales. They said the Welsh town names correctly, but other than that, there were no accents. I was like... It's missing something. (laughs) Yeah. You can't go to Wales and nobody has an accent. Yeah. So, I mean, I just love it because... And when you're reading books like this, usually it's a
0: British... Probably 98% of the time, it's a British narrator.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah, You get in the like whole feeling and atmosphere of what you're reading number nine is try a screen adaptation yes sometimes though those don't ha- the humor doesn't come across so that people don't you know whoever's producing these does not understand the humor that dickens yes is trying to portray i there was like a 2020
1: version of david
0: copperfield i think
1: i saw that well i didn't i haven't watched it but i saw that there was that and i i'd like to go Check it out. I remember watching an adaptation of Great Expectations and I thought it was really good. I thought they did a good job of it. The kid who plays Pip is like kind of this pretty boy character and you're like, what? <laughs> I read that this 2020 version of David Copperfield
0: is like the first one that they actually got the humor. and They were well, able to portray it. So yeah, i thought it was interesting to check
1: it out. Because A Christmas Carol... It's probably arguably been one that's been done maybe more than any other book to movie. Yes. <laughs> but Little Women is probably right up there. My personal favorite is the one for, I think it's 1983, but George C. Scott plays Ebenezer Scrooge. It is, to me, far and away, the best one. So Good. We were watching one this
0: Christmas, like on a free something on the Roku channel free or whatever. Mm
1: -hmm. And it
0: was very old. I wonder if that it seemed like it probably probably was like 1983. Oh, really? Amazing how old 1983 looks now. (laughs) (laughs) Or even like. I know. 1999 or <laughs> yeah, that's true.
1: Although I feel like the nineties are kind of was like maybe one of the worst decades. So some yes. of the nineties movies like look older than even some seventies movies. Okay. That's not true. Seventies were pretty bad, but uh, yeah, they, they do look, a lot of them look older. Yeah, we were just
0: talking movies. about, um, it wasn't Goonies, the princess bride and Sydney looked it up today and it was, came out in 1986. So Maybe not. I bet you what I was watching was from like the 60s because oh, okay. it didn't look that bad. I mean, I'm picturing Princess Bride. It wasn't. Anyway, yeah. it wasn't that bad. Okay. Yeah. The last one is, it's okay if you don't like Dickens. You have permission. Yes. That is true. Give it a try. If you don't like it, just listen to us. We'll tell you about it.
1: Yes. You don't have to read it. And yeah. And then you'll know the story. And- but also don't like brush it off and just yeah. say, well, this is dumb. Because that's like... That's one of the most frustrating phrases that I ever hear from people. I just don't like it. It's dumb. And it's like, but it's not dumb. You don't have to like it, but it's not dumb. I guess what I would say is
0: kind of give it like, give one of his novels a really good try. Yes. You know what I mean? And then decide like, I don't like it or whatever, if you want to. I mean, I decided years ago that I don't like Jane Austen, but- I'm gonna give it a try, and we're gonna. Awesome. I mean,
1: we're gonna purpose. do it.
0: But yeah, I don't know. It's okay if you don't like him. He yeah. might
1: not be for you. He might be too weird. And in some cases, it's like it's it's pretty dark. Like there's some dark things, but there was a lot of purpose and intent behind that to really bring attention to some of those things and to make people who are pretty uppity go this could happen to me. So maybe I need to sit up and pay attention and also to be very relatable. And so here's a few of his sort of bestsellers, the most notable that people would probably know. So there's The Pickwick Papers, Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickleby, A Christmas Carol, David Copperfield, Bleak House, Little Dorrit, A Tale of Two Cities, and Great Expectations. I was going to ask you which ones have you read? Okay, so I have done the Pickwick Papers, A Christmas Carol, Tale of Two Cities, and Great Expectations. So I have several that I I had started Bleak House and then I like was not in a headspace for it because it is very it's first of all, it's huge. It's, huge. Mm. <laughs> it's so big. Like all of his books are big, but that one is like oh, so big. But I need to revisit quite a few of those, obviously.
0: I told you already, mm-hmm. I've only listened to, I mean, I only read Great Expectations. And I've read parts of A Christmas Carol. i started a few times.
1: Yeah. Someday I will, uh, we'll do it for the podcast someday and then I'll read the whole Yes. Podcast. Yeah. It's so good. And it's so fun. And one of the reasons that I really love that George C. Scott version is because it stays very true to the story, mm-hmm. I think. Okay. So as far as our specific Charles Dickens book. A Tale of Two Cities, like this is one of his later books. And he did say that it's, to him, it was like his best story he had written, he thought. And he tried to focus more on the story than he had in other books, um, just making it really a fascinating storyline. So it's all about, obviously, the French Revolution, And it's focusing, the two cities are London and Paris. It's when it talks about the best of times, the worst of times, that is referring to the years leading up to the French Revolution. And where A Christmas Carol is sort of like the quintessential Christmas book, a lot of people consider A Tale of Two Cities the sort of the authority on a French Revolution story. So there are, you know, Of course, historians are going to be like, oh, but it's not like that accurate. Like people wouldn't actually behave that way during this much tumult and uh, turbulence and things. But oh, well, over well over 100 years and people still consider it like one of the best French Revolution stories. One of his purposes in writing it was to remind readers that behind political processes are the individuals involved in them. And so that's something to remember as we read it because yeah like it's a it's a horrible and awful time but there's like real people mm-hmm. doing real things so uh and like i said before there's like there's a love triangle happening and there's great sacrifice and great horror and so i think that's all that i really want to say about it right now because we're going to really dive into it next week
0: yeah when i read the plot summary i was like this is going to be complicated and confusing with a lot of characters, but we're not going to get bogged down by all the characters. Right. We're going <laughs> to take it slowly and it's going to be great. Yeah. in like, let's see, one, two. There's like eight major characters and then it looks like a lot of minor ones. Yeah, And not, not well, about eight. So that's not too bad. Yeah. And I th- also think it's interesting that the major character, the, f- the main
1: character's name is Charles. That's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Charles yeah. Darney, yeah, and Sydney Carter, and Miss Lucy Manette are some of the main ones. And then, <laughs> of course, there's several others. Jarvis Laurie plays a big part. I love Jerry Cruncher, Mrs.
0: Cruncher. Yeah, Cruncher yeah. that's a good name. It is. Yeah, this will be fun. I'm excited. I mean, I'm scared, but I'm also excited. So
1: this book is divided into three books yeah. and the first book is just, it's sort of like setting up the scene for you and it's about six chapters. So we'll start with that. And then the second book is much longer. So we'll break that one up quite a bit more, but there's one quote from Charles Dickens that I wanted to end with if, unless there's more that you want to talk oh. about, but so he said, and I feel like this relates to like, this is an amazing summation of himself of all his books, and of life in general. He says, There are dark shadows on the earth, but its lights are stronger in the contrast. And that's so beautiful. It's like we don't appreciate how bright lights are unless there is darkness to contrast it with. And so there is darkness in life. There's darkness in people. But a lot of times, the goodness outdoes the darkness. I mean... There, like with Charles Dickens, we know that his contributions to the world are incredible and beautiful and full of light. It's only when you dig a little deeper that you find out, oh, he was a man that had some serious issues. Yeah, he did. And it doesn't make him a bad person. He just has his dark shadows. But he also has his lights, as we all do. Yeah, I was gonna say everybody has
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not often aired. Yeah. Well, we try to hide. Yeah. (laughs) And if we're successful, that's great.
1: And There's poor people like Charles Dickens. Everybody's going to dig into his past and find all of his, the skeletons in his closet. And we've been saying that about, okay,
0: I'm going to out myself here. I'm obsessed. And I've said before with the sister wives, right? Mm -hmm. And the new thing is like, things come out, that you know co everybody hates cody the the man and so Mm -hmm. he'll say things and then we're like wait a second but in this episode he said this right and Mm -hmm. i'm always telling david i am so glad there are not cameras following me around recording everything i say so that later when i say something they're like wait no 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 you said this three years ago or whatever
1: i know yeah because oh we're so fallible and yes uh, yeah, it would I'm just,
0: be awful. I'm just so glad there's not cameras following me around all the time. And then we just watched this show on HBO Max called The Vow. Have you heard of the Nexium cult? Anyways, uh-huh. same thing. The guy, oh my gosh, he was awful. But he wanted, he thought, he kind of thought he was like a god. And mm-hmm. I mean, he was just like, I'm the smartest person on the planet and whatever. And so he recorded everything. Like everything, because he thought for history, it needed to be recorded. Well, guess what? It condemned him. I mean, it like put him in jail. They were like, you shouldn't have recorded everything.
1: Oh, snap. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. And you kind of go, oh, well, that's sweet revenge. But it was sweet justice. Oh, that show was just
0: so, I can't even stop thinking about it because I'm like, that man was so evil. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's like, you don't even think about there being people like that in the world. if you want a fascinating
1: deep dive into a cult. There you go. <laughs> so it's the Nexium cult. yeah But the show is called The Vow. Uh-huh. Oh,
0: interesting. Okay. okay. Yeah. And my husband said tonight, what cult do you want to dive into now? Like <laughs> <I don't
1: know. laughs> That's funny. We're, yeah, we're obsessed. Do you have anything you're reading right now? Yes, I just needed to get on you do, I don't <laughs> really quickly I was like, who, who wrote the book you I'm know, reading? Quick backstory. When we did our top ten books that we read in 2022, I, I was like, I don't think I read that many. I don't remember. And the big problem was, like I said, that I hadn't written them down. But since then, I've been like remembering all these books that I've read that I read and listened to in 2022. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And those ones would have made the list in place of others. And I'm like, Sad about that. So maybe I'll talk about some of those another time. But one that I started in 2022 and just wasn't able to finish because I lost Hoopla, but now I have it back. So I was like, I'm going to finish it. It's The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. So excellent. So, so good. So it's about the Great Depression, which I don't feel like is written about enough. It's one of those kind of like World War II, where I mean, there's a ton written about World War II now but it took a while you know for people to really start writing it I think it had to skip a generation or two for people to be like okay now we can start writing about it same thing with the great depression not a ton is written about it I don't think I haven't seen very much but this one I thought was really well done of course there's the grapes of wrath and I felt like in some ways this was sort of a modern woman's view the grapes of wrath it was very well done. So it's a family in Texas. They're, you know, victims of the Dust Bowl lose their, they don't lose their farm, but they're pretty close to it. And this woman, her husband just up and leaves and her in-laws are just this amazing Italian couple who are like, you need to leave. You need to take your family to California because of course they're promised all these wonderful things in California because her little son Uh, is just like dying from all the dust storms he's literally dying and so she picks up and leaves she's like terrified but goes to california and as, as as so many of them do they face the um you know total discrimination and uh sort of bigotry put on them by these californians who just don't get it but they see these people coming to them from the dust bowl as like less than because they don't understand what it is to lose your farm to things beyond your control, you know. That's where the um, yeah. term "okies" came from. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, and and it was very much a, a demeaning term. Yep. Yeah. And I, well, I don't think anybody uses it anymore. But if they did, it would still be a demeaning I think, term. like my dad, like oh. his generation
0: would use that word.
1: Interesting. Okay, that's where I've heard it. <laughs>
0: that
1: yeah. is so funny. Yeah. Did your parents not use that word? No. Yeah. They had never used that. And even like my, like my grandparents never did, but so I didn't really learn about it very much until my kids and I were studying all about the great depression and the Dust Bowl. And we learned all about this place called Weed Patch Camp, uh, this school that was set up for little kids and their families that and there were no strings attached it was just like these kids need a school where they're not going to face this discrimination and and things and so that was that was a really good book too it was an excellent book i
0: thought it was very i think the beginning of that book really like the situation with her and her husband really got my attention like i can remember it very clearly like yes she's very wronged by her husband Oh, and oh. yes. And he just, she was plain. He didn't really, you know, she wasn't beautiful. People would tell her she was never going to get married. Nobody could love her. Oh, do, yes. Isn't that true? Yes. <laughs> I like, yeah. is that true? Yeah. yeah. I and, mean, it sticks
1: in my mind. Yeah. And the truth is, like, it's not that she really was horribly plain. Mm-hmm. I think that she was just fine, but uh, she totally bought into this idea that she was not beautiful. And she, all of her worth just laid in what she could do, yeah. which, I mean, it's not like all of your worth that lies in your looks either. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying at all. But I think everyone, every woman needs to be told that she's beautiful. Yeah. You know? And not told you,
0: you aren't. In- <laughs>
1: yeah. And not told that you're plain or that you're ugly or that you're never going to get married, that you're never going to amount yeah. to anything, which is what she was told constantly. Yeah. I loved that book. Okay, so I am reading
0: the Bandit Queens by Parini Shroff. Hmm. I don't love it. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Do you ever get to this point where you're listening to a book? Well, I was kind of enjoying it. I think it was okay, and then I got in a car accident, and I was telling my husband at the hospital, <laughs> "What's at the hospital? I'm fine, obviously." But I was telling him I was listening to this really good book. And now and and I guess it was because it was like I was listening to it and then I got in the accident and like the battery of the car got scrunched. And so like the book just Mm -hmm. went off. I don't know. It was like I had forgotten I was listening to it. But Mm -hmm. now I'm like, I have like two hours left of it. And I just like don't want to listen to the rest of it because I'm just not into it. Interesting. And Mm -hmm. I thought I would be the premise of it. I thought it sounded just like something I would like. And I'd heard about it you know, raved about. And so I thought, oh, this is gonna be great. But I'm not loving it. So it's about this woman, I believe, I don't even isn't this bad. I don't even know like what country they're in. Like I said, the narrator doesn't have an accent. So let me I mean the author almost sounds Italian. Well I was thinking like, Uh let's see what it says. But she's that's what I thought. She's Indian. I was thinking like Uh African, but Indian. Okay, her husband just disappeared. And there's all these false rumors that she killed him, which she did not. Um, And you find out later that she didn't. And all of these women in the village start asking her for help killing their husbands. Because they're abusive or, you know, like they're horrible men. And so she like helps them, even though she didn't kill her own husband. But she'll like kill, you know, help them and then feel bad about it. And the woman, like the first woman that she helps is like, what are you talking about? Like, we needed him gone. Like, it's fine. So, I mean, the premise sounds great. But like, as I'm listening to it, I just have no interest. I have no, there, to me, I don't connect with any of the characters. Hmm. I don't really like any of them. Hmm. I don't know. It's not my thing for you. Yeah, But like, listening to the plot, I'm like, that sounds great. That sounds like something I would love. I love books about, Women that are in a plight like that, like mm-hmm. they're
1: in an abusive well, it kind movie. of. It kind of makes me think of the number one ladies detective agency. Yeah, Ma Romatsue. I loved loved that book. It was so good. They, I don't think they ever killed anybody, but she was just really clever, and it was sort of like she just fell into the role. If I remember, it was years ago that I read that book, but
0: anyway. And that's, I guess, that's what I'm saying is there was a, there's a lot of potential. Yeah, but like I I read I was re listening reading some other comments about it online and like people also that thought that they would love it and they were like I only really connected with the dog, and I was like <laughs> yeah, and and the dog's name is Bandit and it's like okay. yeah I just so hmm. I have to make myself finish it just because I mean why not I'm like eighty percent in yeah but I don't know if like the car accident threw my brain somewhere else and it was like I just don't care about that book anymore but well maybe yeah it's been a quite a week yes (laughs) so anyways that's what I'm reading (laughs) and tomorrow I'm gonna force myself to finish it I do that a lot (sighs) I get like 75 or 80 percent into a book and so like one week I should just try to finish all the books that I haven't finished and then
1: oh maybe well that would be a way to add a whole lot to your my list list. we're so happy you joined us for this episode we hope you will join us next week as we discuss book one of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens if you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss please email us at thebestbookspodcast at com. we would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends we want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books
0: As Thoreau says, read the best books first,
1: or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.